Hi, I'm Alex Buckman with Below the Radar, and you're listening to The Power of Disability with your host, community organizer, social entrepreneur, and author, Alan Mansky. This is a six-part series of the Below the Radar podcast. The Power of Disability features interviews with special guests centering on the contributions of people with disabilities. Hello, everybody. I'm Al Mansky, and this is the Power of Disability podcast, highlighting what history has overlooked, the contributions of people with disabilities. Today's Power of Disability guest is Rabia Kadir. Welcome, Rabia. Thank you, Al. Glad to be here. Have I pronounced your name even remotely correctly? <laughs> Close enough. It's Rabia Khidr. Rabia Khidr. There's a, there's a, uh, okay. <laughs> All right. <Don't> try. <laughs> I'll have to practice that. Um, Rabia, you were born in Pakistan and lived there until the age of four when you came to Canada. You're a grassroots activist, diversity consultant, motivational speaker, former commissioner of human rights in Ontario, a member of the board of Accessible Standards Canada founder of the Canadian Association of Muslims with Disabilities, and I could go on and on. I renewed our acquaintance when you and I were on the Federal COVID Disability Advisory Committee around this time last year. I'm speaking to you today from your home in Mississauga, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So am I. This is great. Thank you all. So I've just given a really top-level description of who you are. I've heard you say that you're a person of many hijabs. <laughs> what, what does that mean? And, and how would you describe yourself? Well, I think it, it means that I've sort of branded myself with a one-liner over the years as I've discovered elements of my identity and, you know, they're kind of sequential, consequential, intentional, deliberate, however I want to package it. So the one-liner that I usually formally introduce myself with in events or, you know, talks or whatever that I'm doing is, my name is Rabia Khudr, I'm a hyphen with many hijabs, as you mentioned. You know, that, that in a Canadian context to me means I can have a hyphenated identity. That's the beauty of our multicultural reality, this experiment that we're doing, that we are dedicated to making a success out of. This, this will be our legacy to humanity, that we are a diverse society that strives for inclusion and, and embraces uh, our, our multicultural roots. So a hyphen with many hijabs means I am a Muslim, Punjabi, Pakistani, Canadian woman, wife, mother, activist, advocate, sibling of individuals with disabilities, daughter of aging parents, consultant, yada, yada, yada. And I happen to have a disability. I happen to be legally blind. And my punchline around that is, I don't know how you'd be illegally blind. But apparently, you know, people have come up with legal definitions of what constitutes blindness. And blindness is not black and white. Somebody described it to me as this gray fog. You know, it's, 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 and it's an invisible gray. You can't even tangibly say it's gray. It's not that blindfolded darkness that you would do through experiential learning. So that's who I am. Thank you. Thanks. That's a much better description than uh, the one I think uh, the one I used. And I, I think you probably get a few laughs when you, uh, when you describe yourself that way. 
I do. <laughs> I, I just want to just stay on this question of descriptions just for a moment. It's not yet commonplace, and maybe someday it will be, to describe oneself visually uh, at meetings or on Zoom calls if you don't have visual uh, handicap or if you're not uh, blind. So in that context, I'm a, an older white male with not much hair wearing a blue shirt. When I'm on calls uh, with people who don't see as well or clearly at all, they are requesting those kinds of descriptions of who's on the call with them, as well as clarity around the images and pictures that may be on a PowerPoint or something like that. Do you have an opinion about that? Uh, do you think that should be come commonplace? How, how important do you think that is? It's indeed helpful, especially if you know your audience and you know that you're engaging with somebody that may have certain barriers related to a disability. And in my case specifically, I can't see what's on my screen. I don't have technology that will interpret images or faces for me, you know, in the form of verbiage or description. So when somebody tells me, hey, this is how I look, that, that helps me because you know what, you're getting all that visual information about me. It's important that I be given the same information to, to engage in, in a conversation that helps me also place who you are when you are visually placing me in some sort of, you know, context. Mm -hmm. um, so how do you, because I've seen you integrate information that's in print, you know, on the spot you know, in intense meetings. And so how do you get that information? What's your, what's your process? Actually, there are pros and cons uh, with this virtual world that we're in right now. Uh, in an ordinary circumstance, for example, I might be sitting on my laptop in a meeting and following along uh, with a presentation document or something and speaking to it and stuff. And, you know, sometimes you'll hear me pause and ooh and awe ah a little bit more because I'm trying to read. And when I say read, I am listening to a little voice in my ear, read to me what's on my computer screen. Um, I'm doing that while at the same time paying attention to what's happening in the room. So it's, it's voiceover technology in the context of, you know, the iPhone world in the context of, you know, Microsoft and as such, there are certain screen reader packages and I use something called JAWS and my joke around JAWS is, you know, uh, the reading voice had a name uh, when I first got introduced to scanners and stuff that would read aloud text in the early 90s. And this infamous voice was Paul. And over the years, he's transformed to read. And I cracked a joke that when I did a talk once in Ottawa, I said, you know, I have this little voice talking to me in my ear, and I've lived with this guy longer than my husband. So, <laughs> so and I go on to say, you know, my technology, like my laptop, I feel I have the right to self-defense if anybody harms my laptop. <laughs> you know, if there is any damage caused to my laptop and I, I react, I have the right to self-defense because everything in my life sits on this laptop. This laptop with its technology integrated gives me that access to the written world and gives me that access to writing down very pertinent, you know, daily 
living information for me from recipes to phone numbers to contacts to reports for people. Thank you. Um, I want to just step back a little bit and um, poke around in your background some more. What was your favorite thing to do as a child when you lived in Pakistan? I don't remember. I came here when I was four. <laughs> I actually have very little memory of, of being there. I maybe have some memories that were, you know, reinforced by my parents because of the relatives that we left behind, you know, grandparents and aunts and uncles. But I really have very little memory of life there. So any no smells or no, you know, sounds okay, or anything weirdest, like that? that uh... The weirdest smell, <laughs> the weirdest, strangest smell that I can uh. tell you about is the smell at bus terminals, The you know, that gasoline smell in buses. Uh, and the only thing that comes close to it is being at any other bus terminal. Um, but in that part okay. of the world, it's intense and it's lively and it's lots of chatter. And, you know, we had to fight to get uh, the transit system to do uh, announcements of stops. And in many cultures and traditions, that's just a part of the liveliness of, of, you know, towns and cities that, you know, the drivers are calling you onto their routes, announcing where they're going. You know, it, it's almost a way of heckling business. <laughs> Come on board. I'm taking you to this town, you know? So, so it's a whole different life. So that's maybe my, my, you know, one of those sort of distinct memories per se that I would say, you know, I have, but the eye condition I have, Al, is, is something where I do have visual memory um, in the sense of mm-hmm. uh, it's, an, it's a genetic condition from birth. It's recessive. I had sight, but not enough sight. So I was always, quote unquote, visually impaired. I don't like the term visually impaired because I feel like I could be detoxed, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it's, you know, but I know it's a medical term and whatever. So, but I had low vision. And at this stage in my life, I have no functional vision. Yeah. You've described uh, one of your superpowers uh, as being fluent in Punjabi, Urdu, and English, and that in fact, English is your language of power. Knowing you as I do, it's not the only powerful thing about you. And I'm, I'm aware that many people with disabilities are now describing their superpower. Uh, Greta Thunberg, the climate activist who identifies as a person with a disability, talks about her superpower. In that context, beyond uh, speaking English <laughs> as your language of power, how would you describe your superpower? Again, you know, I'm, I, I struggle with, you know, we, we were, some of us were having a conversation around, you know, how people label as it, uh, us as inspirational. And we were, and my comment in that conversation was, I struggle with some of that language because from one end, I feel awkward when people say you inspire me or you're inspirational. And from another end, when I see people not doing anything, and I don't see them necessarily having the kinds of experiences or barriers that people with disabilities live with. I kind of feel like saying to them, look at me, I can do this. Why can't you? So it's, it's a sort mm-hmm. of a tension, a contradiction. But so, so in, in terms of superpower, I, I don't like the super part of it in that regard. But okay. what do I do? 
I speak truth to power. I'm not afraid to challenge anybody. And, you know, and I can give context to that from the perspective that I've had to always speak to get what I need. Nobody was going to speak for me. I didn't have people speaking for me. I spoke for my siblings. I spoke for my mom, you know. So I've gotten used to speaking for others in my life over time. But I had nobody to speak for me. So I had to learn how to do that as an immigrant child. And this is a reality for a lot of immigrant children, that they adapt and learn quicker than the adults who come with them. And they end up facilitating that role and and becoming sort of that gatekeeper of power. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Rabia, I've seen this quote, I've read this quote uh, associated with you, and and, um, it's almost contradictory. And this is the quote. It says, being blind, I see things differently. And and uh, I'm re- I'm reminded of many things when I when I think of this. Um, I happen to be reading a book recently about the Enlightenment in France, and philosophers there. Uh, you know, uh, one of them is this this guy Jean Jacques mm-hmm. Rousseau. Anyway, he he said that he believed that blindness was a social asset. And that he thought that the ability to navigate without eyesight should be an important part of everyone's life. And he felt that children should actually uh, be, and this is the term he used, blindfolded. So they went to that extent. So I don't know if you were touching on that, uh, but uh, being blind, I see things differently. What do you mean by that? I don't judge a book by its cover. I have to dive into it to figure it out um, or at least read, you know, the, the Cole's note version of it or something. For me, it's, you know, I'm not getting all that unnecessary visual information to pass judgment on a situation. If I'm sharing my opinion around the table, I am not influenced by how people are looking back at me. So, you know, when I talked about, you know, mm-hmm. speaking truth to power, I mean, and I often say, you know, I do that because I don't see the dirty looks that people give me. So I do speak my mind. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and with all of this kind of stuff, the, the other kind of stuff that I, you know, have gotten or, or been convinced to give myself permission to do what I do, it, it, it also comes from that spiritual space for me right? Discovering my, my beliefs, my religion, the way I, you know, identify myself in a, a very, you know, whole way today. Um, and when we're talking specifically about, you know, this idea of seeing things differently, when we're talking about speaking truth to power, most of women are seen as oppressed. And yet, uh, in Islamic tradition, uh, women stood up and spoke to very powerful men leaders in society to challenge their knowledge or challenge their decisions very publicly. So, you know, if that could have happened in that context, what's the big deal today is, is the way I see it. And, mm-hmm. you know, when we're talking about that concept of, you know, when I'm saying, you know, being blind, I see things differently, uh, even within a spiritual con- context, I've 
come across people talking about the idea of, you know, Islam talking about, you know, the outer eye versus the inner eye. Right. So there mm -hmm. is some conversation about and, um, you know, when you mentioned that I found was one of the founders of Canadian Association of Muslims with Disabilities, we started that conversation specifically within the Muslim community to help people reflect on how disability is seen within their spiritual context to shift those attitudes because um, in Islamic tradition through our holy book and, and the traditions of, of the prophet that we follow as our sort of, you know, constitutional rights, disability aspects are used in metaphoric contexts, like the ability not to see, the ability not to hear, the ability not to speak, uh, not to move. All these are used in sort of metaphoric contexts, but not in a physiological context. There's no reference to disability in a physiological context within Islamic tradition, reducing the role of people with disabilities. So, so that's also something that, you know, gives me that ability to speak truth to power. That really, for me, juxtaposes the sense that somehow in, in North America or in the European world or out of the European tradition that we have the most enlightened approach to, to disability. And what I'm hearing from you is a, a counter narrative to that, that is not well understood and it, it's important that that be articulated. Is there anything uh, that you would refer us to as listeners that, that we could learn more about that? This is something that we're actually working on through, you know, our, our network of Muslims with disabilities internationally. We actually did an international conference last year on disability and Islam. Um, and the whole mm -hmm. reason was uh, to bring forward research that is in English and, and have it shared amongst people from around the world. And we engaged, you know, people from maybe 24 different countries. And, and we will be launching an online journal on disability in Islam, specifically for that reason, because we feel that we can use people's faith to, to help shift attitudes that might be otherwise context within, contextualized within their um, cultural realities or experiences and cultural experiences in many different parts of the world see dis disability in many different ways and often negative. Yeah. So often associated with karma, with, you know, bad behavior, with a curse, you know, as a taboo. And in order to bring people out of those, you know, sort of uh, pity, embarrassment, uh, misfortune sort of approaches toward disability, we want to, you know, have them reconcile those perspectives with their religious duties, with their religious beliefs and say, hey, if, for example, and I'm, I'm giving you maybe a more, the most direct example in uh, Islamic tradition that's there, there's actually a passage in the Quran and, and a verse uh, that tells a story and, and this verse was revealed as a result of an incident. And there was an incident where Prophet Muhammad was sitting with some elders in uh, Mecca, uh, wealthy nobility. You know, there was some 
some governance, some political maneuvering going on, and a blind man approached him. And he frowned and looked away. That blind man came with a question and didn't realize that there was some important meeting going on. And the prophet frowned and looked away. And this verse came down to rebuke the prophet for his behavior. And that's a very important learning piece. Uh, and, and the message around it was essentially, you know, who says who's more important, right? So that, that just speaks volumes to, you know, how people with disabilities were recognized. And, and that same gentleman went on to be uh, the administrator of the city of Medina in the absence of the prophet in the future. I look forward to those resources you've talked about, and we'll make sure that the listeners have access to your website and all of your other, associated with your own work, but also all of your other work. Um, Rabia, in my book, The Power of Disability, um, I have a subtitle that says, 10 Lessons for Surviving, Thriving, and Changing the World. And my, my point there is that, you know, there's an untapped source of wisdom on all of those levels. I, I'd like to turn our attention uh, to this whole question of how to change the world. And I, I wanna get into some very specific things that you're involved with. Um, but before I do, in, in a general way, uh, what do you see as some of the biggest challenges that we're facing as a society uh, right now that, you know, other than COVID itself, but maybe that has been amplified by, by COVID? Well, the, the inequities, the discrimination, the disproportionate impact of uh, emergencies and, um, you know, politics and all that really has come to the forefront. You know, there, there is an implicit hierarchy of priorities. And we've seen this play out with emergency measures and any uh, responses to supporting people. We saw, you know, whose life mattered more, the life of people involved in production, in work, in, you know, employment was the most valued. And then came uh, students and seniors. And last came people with disabilities. So, so in, in many, many ways, that just speaks volumes to... Uh, the price tag associated with the worth of people's abilities and age and, and, and all that kind of stuff. That there is, you know, there, there's a price tag that is um, given consideration in terms of who do we respond to first, who's most important, and who's least important. So, Ravi, you are co-chairing a, um, a broad-based uh, grassroots cross-disability initiative in Canada to escort into being an income supplement for people with disabilities. It is uh, something that has been mentioned in the government's throne speech, but you and a number of other people, and I'm involved as well, and, you know, are working to make sure that that becomes a reality. How would you describe this, this initiative to secure a, a Canadian disability benefit? I describe it as spontaneous but intentional, as unique and, and timely. And, you know, there's that word, as, as inspiring as we move forward to mobilize. The number of people that have expressed interest 
uh, have offered to support, have come together to engage in conversations it is tremendous. And uh, the speed of lightning at which we're moving is also very, very inspiring. There is a recognized need that things need, things have to change, that we have to make the future better. We have to make the future better and include people with disabilities as we make that future better for everyone. And people with disabilities are gonna play a central role in improving that quality of life for people with disabilities and their families. They're gonna lead the charge and they're gonna bring about significant changes because we're living history and we have to shape the future. There's an expression, nothing about us without us in the, in the disability movement, uh, although it's a genuine political expression that's been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's, it's been used by the disability community uh, in many parts of the world over the last three or four decades. And it strikes me that, you know, that what you're talking about is a profound manifestation of that, that no longer is it good enough for, good enough for just credentialed people to act on behalf of uh, people with disabilities or um, um, activists who may or may not have a connection to the disability world to be leading the policy agenda. I know from your involvement, you're pretty resolute and pretty disciplined and, and pretty blunt about this expression, nothing about us without us. And on one level, of course, everybody can agree with it in principle, but you know, I wonder if you could unpack that just a little bit in terms of what the implications are, because I find myself as a longtime disability advocate and as a parent having to rethink, you know, my role and my place and my position in this. And maybe others who are listening or watching this today may, may be thinking the same thing. So could you maybe go into that expression a little bit more? Well, to me, nothing about us without us means that we all have to be involved in the change that we want to see. So if we are working on an issue on, you know, or, or seeking an opportunity um, and wanting to impact, uh, to make like real necessary solid impact, then we as people with disabilities have to be at the decision-making table. We can be supported by allies and friends. Families are, are a part of that lived experience of disability. So I think, you know, somebody like you as a lifetime advocate parent, you have the right to a seat at the table. However, it can't just be all parents. It can't just be all one kind of disability. It can't just be all a bunch of academics and, and policy people. We all have to work hand in hand, but the range of disabilities of lived experience needs to be reflected in the journey, in, at the table, making the decisions, leading the work. People with disabilities cannot just be consulted, cannot just serve as advisors, cannot just be called upon to give their knowledge and time freely. They must be compensated for the work that they do. Bureaucracy, programs and services, policy changes cannot just generate opportunities in the economy that benefit able-bodied people on the backs of people with disabilities. 
we know what's best for us. And that's why it's nothing about us without us. And that's why we have to be involved in all aspects of the work that's going to impact our lives. Rabia, there's another dimension to big impact systems change, and that is cultural. And, and that word is used in a couple of different ways. Um, one, one is the culture as in is art and music and and the like, uh, and the other is cultural, as in, um, you know, uh, cultural background, cultural experiences, traditions associated with country of origin, etc. Um, I'm not doing a very good job of describing that one, but but these cultural dimensions of change are important, and you're right in the middle of that on so many different levels. Um, you co-chaired the Canadian Muslim COVID-19 Task Force, and you know you're on this federal government advisory committee as well. Can you comment on the what I call the cultural dimensions of change? What what have you learned about that? You know, so it's not just policy, not just money, but that there are other things we have to pay attention to that Well, there's always a dominant culture in our systems and structures that caters to what it views as the norm, uh, the lens that it views Uh, the world around it and the impact of the work that's being done. Uh, It's the lens that that sort of, you know, what is normal is seen. So that dominant culture is what is deeply seated throughout our socioeconomic political system and structures and comes out in the form of policies, programs, procedures, goods and services, et cetera, et cetera, trickling down to uh, the end users who are vastly diverse. Uh, and, and those you know, vastly diverse individuals come from uh, various backgrounds of lived experience of culture. Culture is, you know, tied to an ethnicity, it's tied to rituals within the family structure, it's tied to class, it, it, it intersects in so many different ways. And um, race also plays a huge role. So if we truly are to bring about impactful change that is inclusive, then we have to make sure that we are leveraging the richness of diversity that your local Walmart has learned to leverage on holidays and holy days and marketing uh, strategies, right? Where they view it as profitable. The sort of, you know, public sector also needs to recognize that um, diversity and inclusion uh, goes beyond celebrations, that we have to do work that incorporates an equity and inclusion lens intertwined with accessibility uh, requirements. And, you know, around this kind of work, a lot, lots of times we sort of compartmentalize, well, these are the disability issues or accessibility barriers or whatever. And here are all the equity things going on, given somebody's race and culture and religion and yada, yada, yada. Whereas, you know, 
these things need to come together. So coming back to my one liner, I gave you, you know, my religious background, I gave you my linguistic ethnic background, I gave you my, you know, nationality, my gender, my, you know, sort of marital status stuff, my, you know, work career kind of business, the roles, you know, with, you know, siblings and, and stuff like that, and my disability. So it's this whole aspect of me that makes me a whole person that informs my lived experience and also impacts how I engage, what I need, how I access what I need, uh, and what barriers I face and how, how those layers of barriers disadvantage me within the dominant culture. So if I'm not sitting at the table to voice from my perspective, my needs are going to be neglected. So as you were, and we're coming toward the end of our time here, but I, I wanted to, to ask you about this because it seems to me there's potential tension here between two perspectives. One is the perspective that you've just been talking about, which is that all of these different identities come together. In effect, it's a, it's a message about solidarity. Uh, it's a message about we're stronger together. It's a message about looking for where, where we have common agreement and how we can move forward in a more unified manner on the one hand. And on the other hand, there is this, this whole question of identity. And um, I know in the disability world, this, this whole emergence of pride, it's a mixture of pride, it's a mixture of anger, it's a mixture of frustration, uh, enough's enough, you know, we've got to get mm -hmm. this, uh, we've got to get these changes happening. Uh, it's not good enough to be incremental in our uh, strategy and in our approach. So there's a potential tension, at least, between identity, as I've just described it, and this broader solidarity. How do you how do you see that resolved or do you, do you think it's contradictory? I, I don't think so. I don't think there's a contradiction. I'm saying, um, you know, I, I reject all that ableist language of we're differently abled or, you know, we're physically challenged and all that kind of stuff. Right. So, you know, having a disability is an aspect of my life. Right. Um, when I'm giving you that sort of sequence of my identity, I'm, I'm kind of just, you know, trying to educate people to look past my disability and realize that I am a whole human being. And my disability experience is, de is a definite part of my experience as a human being. And it cannot be ignored. It cannot be dissected. It cannot be segregated. It cannot be comp compartmentalized and, and dealt with only as disability or, or, you know, I cannot be looked at as just the disabled person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you for that explanation. Maybe a, a, a final question, and I'll just throw it back to you. Uh, we've been talking now for 30 plus minutes. Is there anything that you'd like to leave the, the listener slash, uh, you know, viewer with in terms of this discussion or in terms of the work that you're doing or uh, an insight uh, that you, as one of the wisest people I know, has gained uh, in, in your in your life. Um, over to you for you know <laughs> what what have I missed in not asking you the. 
I mean, we could talk forever on these issues and, and you know, there's lots to, to be said and there are lots of other people who, who need to also be heard and have a say. But I think we're at a very critical point in history. We are living the 21st century and we need to do things better. And we have a duty and an obligation to do things better. If we don't seize this moment, if we don't recognize the urgency and the opportunity, we're going to look back and regret. So I really want every single person who is tuning in for this conversation to recognize that they do have power, that there is a need for change, and the time has come. The time has come for us to act together to make that change a reality. And, and that change benefits everybody. Nothing we champion takes away something from someone else. When we change the conversation to including racialized people with disabilities, looking at diversity and inclusion in a more broad-based way within disability, we're not taking anything away from the majority. We do have you know, a rising uh, mindset today that thinks that we are going to take power away from the establishment, power away from the historical gatekeepers of power in, in the systems and structures of this confederation. That's not the goal. The goal is to share power. Rabia, thank you. Uh, it's been a delight to uh, speak with you this way uh, on, on the podcast. Thank you very much. Uh, so for the listener, we will have access and information on uh, Rabia's website, on the website of her many other organizations, and, and a link to this work that she is leading on securing a Canadian disability benefit, which is being uh, characterized as a great example of how to build back better. And uh, as well, you'll find out how you can book her for your next conference or, <laughs> or meeting and, uh, and stay in touch. Um, if you want to read more about the power of disability or learn more about it, be sure to listen to the other conversations in this podcast series, uh, you can check out my website and uh, you can also check out my my latest book, The Power of Disabilities, uh, 10 Lessons for Surviving, Thriving and Changing the World. And with that, I bid you and Rabia uh, a good day. Cheers. This has been part four of The Power of Disability, a special six-part series of the Blow the Radar podcast. Check back next Thursday for the fifth installment. This series is curated and hosted by the community organizer, social entrepreneur, and author, Alec Natsky. Theme music for The Power of Disability is There Is Nothing Wrong With Me Epilepsy by Todd Osecki. The production of this series is supported by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement.